0: Well, our topic for this evening is entitled, The Renewing of the Mind, The Renewing of the Mind. And obviously, as you probably already know, that is a a, a statement, a phrase taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and that very pivotal instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to the Roman church. And we're going to spend our time in Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in particular, But before I do, I I wanted to uh, set the stage, so to speak, in terms of understanding the importance of the text that we have, the importance of renewing our minds. In 1951, a Polish-American psychologist by the name of Solomon Ash conducted what has come to be known as one of the most well-known experiments on society's power to generate conformity. The study involved 123 males taken from Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, and these men were told that they were participating in what they called a vision test. The students were put into groups of 8 to 10 And in each group of eight to ten men, all of the participants, except one, was told about what was happening. There was just one who would be left in the dark. And it was really that single student within every one of those groups that was really the object of the test. The students were to be shown on placards... Lines. The first placard contained one line, and then they were shown a second placard with three lines, and the students were asked from the three lines to choose one that was the same length as the one on the target or original placard. The students who were in on the experiment, the the majority of the students who had been told about what was happening were told that in two-thirds of the situations, they were to secretly agree among themselves to give a wrong answer that left that single student out in the dark. And the students who were in on the experiment would each be asked first what line they believed was longest, or the, the correct line that represented the line on the first placard, and the student who was in the dark was asked last. The student, unaware of the, of the agreement between the other students, was then, was then put on the spot at the end of each questionnaire to, to give his own answer after he, he had heard the, the, the other students, the majority of the students, give their own. The purpose of the experiment was to study the effects of peer pressure, the effect of of the the social pressure to conform, especially when that pressure comes from a majority. And Dr. Ash observed all of these different test groups and made the following observations. He found that in 75% of the cases wherein the majority of the students who are in on the the test purposely gave an incorrect answer, in 75% of those cases, that single student would give a wrong answer. Now, it's interesting to note when that same student would be isolated and asked on his own to match up the correct lines, those individual students would be incorrect less than 1% of the time. The study, which came to be hailed even today as one of these landmark experiments in, in social psychology, proved of the immense pressure that individuals feel to conform to the majority. After the tests were conducted and those individual students were made aware of what was happening, they were asked, why did you give a wrong answer? Well, in some of the situations, the students were so influenced by their peers that they just automatically went with their peers and didn't even know they were answering incorrectly. But in other cases, these students indicated that they were motivated to answer incorrectly for two primary reasons. Number one, fear. They feared being ridiculed or feared being considered peculiar. And then number two, there was a fundamental assumption on the part of these individual students that while they acknowledged that to be independent, to be an independent thinker is a virtue, nonetheless, they conceded that they believed the majority was always in a better situation to make decisions than when a person was in by himself. After the experiment, Solomon Ash wrote up his findings and concluded in an article in which he wrote in Scientific American. He concluded the article with these words quote, That we have found a tendency to conformity in our society so strong that reasonably intelligent and well meaning young people are willing to call white black is a matter of concern. It raises questions about our ways of education and about the values that guide our conduct. End quote. Well, what Dr. Ash revealed here is really nothing new. Since the fall of man, it has always been known that man will conform to the Surroundings, man will conform to the environment around him even when he knows it's wrong. In fact, it has long been an axiom that people usually follow the majority even when they know it's wrong. That's so what marks us as fallen creatures. And this was just a simple study and certainly we, we see that at, at work in, in everyday life. And perhaps we can even say that this pressure to conform to the environment around us has reached unparalleled intensities in our day. Why is that? Well, even much different from Solomon Ash's time 70 years ago, never before in human history has there been the ability of the majority, the ability to propagate opinions, to promote propaganda into the lives of individual people as there is today, whether that is through mass media, the ubiquitous presence of the government, whether that is through through social media, the majority of this world has unparalleled pressure, unparalleled Opportunities for influence. And then you add to that the reality that we are aware of that this world and all that we see is really just the outworking of a world that lies behind it. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that this world walks according to the prince of the power of the air. The the, the, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There is a spiritual element that drives all of this, that presses everyone into its conformity. And as we've seen even just in the last two years, that pressure is increasing at a remarkable rate to the point where here in this country, the country that has Long prided itself in giving individuals opportunity to be themselves and to have their own opinions, that that seems to be in the rear view mirror. Even just of what we heard of this past Sunday and the pressure that there is now on the part of governments, whole national governments, state governments, local governments, to force churches. To bend the message and accommodate the message based on what those governments feel is right. We live in an age of social pressure. Pressure to conform. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. This present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he is styled as a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he is named a bigot. That was written over a century ago, and certainly we have seen that kind of thinking rise to unparalleled levels. Indeed, the pressure to conform is immense. And I can say I'm positive all of you men feel that at a very personal level in this day and age. We're not the only ones, however, that have faced the pressure to conform. That has always existed, as I've said, and and it is that reality that led the Apostle Paul to give this instruction in Romans chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There in verse 2, Paul gives us very clear exhortation. Do not be conformed to this world. He gave that not because that was a mere possibility for the lives of those Roman believers. He understood the context well. These believers existed in the the city that that held the seat of power for the entire Roman Empire. And Paul gives them this instruction and says to them, believers, do not be conformed to this world. As we look at this command in greater detail this evening, especially considering how it relates to the mind... We're going to organize our thoughts around these three points. First, we need to note the present danger. The clear and present danger, and we'll note that at the very beginning of verse 2. Second, we will note the persistent need. The persistent need, right there in the middle of verse 2, Paul explains how to counter the danger. And then thirdly, as we get to the end of this verse, we will see the promised outcome. The promised outcome. Let's look first of all at the present danger as Paul describes it here. And he describes it in the form of a prohibition. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, right at the beginning we have a conjunction, a coordinating conjunction. The word and. And that's there for a reason. And what it does is attach this exhortation to the exhortation, the instruction that has immediately preceded it in verse 1. And again, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. In verse 1, Paul focuses on how we must live our physical lives to the glory of God, how we must use our physical bodies as sacrifices, as an an acceptable offering to the Lord. The focus there is on our bodies. But immediately connected with that, in verse 2, as we've already seen, is the reality of the mind. These two things cannot be separated. In verse 1, he deals with the necessity, the obligation, the duty we have as Christians to present our bodies. That's that's part of our, our spiritual service of worship. But that cannot be done apart from the offering of our minds. And so verse 2 is very closely connected with what we see there. And it shows us that our bodies are as much of a part of a lifestyle of true worship as are our minds. Our minds are extremely important in this concept of worship. How we think of our lives live to the glory of God. Now, as we dig deeper into this, notice what Paul says. He says, Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. As part of this sacrifice, as part of your spiritual service of worship, do not be conformed. Now, in the active sense, that verb has the idea of to form according to a, a pattern or a mold. So you could conform something to something else by using a pattern. In fact, the word that's used here in the beginning of verse 2 is the word from which we get schema, schematics. And those of you who are into uh, electrical engineering and so on know very well what a schematic is. It's, it's that which is needed for, for wiring something. It's so certainly out of my league. You know what that is. But here, Paul uses that same idea, schematic, and is essentially saying, do not make your life conform to the schematic. Do not schematize your life. And it's important to note here, too, that Paul expresses this exhortation in the passive. It's it's not as if believers go out and intentionally decide to Imitate the world, that can certainly happen in those moments of, of sin and disobedience. But Paul is getting at a much more incipient problem, a, a, a much more secret problem, an unnoticed one. One in which the guards, the defenses are down, one in which this conformity happens due to the absence of a resistant pressure in the passive sense paul is essentially saying this do not be formed like do not fall into the mold do not be guided by do not be pulled by the this magnetism that will seek to conform you to a certain kind this exhortation is also given in the present tense, meaning that this is not just something that a person does at the moment of conversion, but this is something that lasts for the entire life. This is a continuous ongoing struggle, a continuous effort, a persistent one, one in which we can, cannot let up, one in which we must always maintain vigilance. The same verb is used by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. I'll read verses 13 to 16. But the similar idea here that we see in Paul in Romans 12, but in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 16, Paul says this. He says, and notice how much this has to do with the mind. Peter says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed. There's the, the same exhortation, a, perfect, a present passive exhortation do not be conformed. And here Peter says do not be conformed to the former lusts which were once yours in your ignorance. Now coming back to Romans chapter 12, Paul also gives us the standard uh, against which we, we are, are not to measure our lives. The standard to which we are not to conform. And he says this, it is, it, we are to be non-conformists with respect to this world. With respect to this world. What does Paul mean by this world. Well the word that is used here is actually literally not cosmos, not 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 world. It's the word which translates as age. In fact, from this Greek word we, we get eon from. It, it's the idea of of length of time. Literally do not be conformed to this age. To this age. We find This similar idea, the same word used in the same way in other texts in the Apostle Paul. For example, notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world, or literally, the God of this age, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's used in the same way, but translated literally in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, where Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 also uses this word. There it's translated a little bit differently. But here Paul says, when he's speaking of the the deadness in which we once walked in, in sins and trespasses, he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course, or literally according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So what is this age? What is this age which Paul says to us, do not be conformed to it? How can we define it? We can define it this way. This age is the era of sin. This age is the era of rebellion. This age is the era of falsehood, of evil, of corruption, of groaning, of judgment, and death. This age is the age in which the prince of the power of the air is at work. He has his minions and he is operating, he is influencing, and he is behind the the powers that we may see in terms of governments, that is, this is his age. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this age. You might think, well, how does it manifest itself? How does this conformity manifest itself? How does one conform himself to this age? Well, just a couple of Thoughts here, conformity to this age manifests itself in these kinds of ways. It manifests itself in an affection for worldly things that is above heavenly things. An affection for worldly things that is above heavenly things. You like the things of this world more than you like the things of heaven and what heaven represents. Perhaps you've talked with people like this before. They'll they'll say yeah I, I I'm headed to heaven I, I want to go there I I, I I desire to be there but I I sure hope the Lord doesn't take me right now because there are a lot of good things here and I'm a little concerned that heaven's going to be boring and you talk to them and their their affections are here. They want to experience all the things this world has to offer. It manifests itself in an admiration for worldly values above biblical ones. So the the things that the world values, the world's definition of goodness, the world's definition of beauty, the world's definition of success, the world's definition of dignity, the world's definition of honor... Worldliness manifests itself in an admiration for those kinds of things above the kinds of things that are described in the Word of God. Conformity to this world manifests itself in a prioritization of worldly goals above eternal ones. You think little of eternity and you think much of this life. You have your whole life charted out for you here on this earth with all the things you want to accomplish. The degree, the career, the house, the vacation house, the car, all of these things are neatly lined up on on your, your list of goals, your bucket list. And when it comes to eternal things, that's empty. Conformity to the world manifests itself in a satisfaction in worldly pleasures above spiritual ones. Yeah, it's, it's okay to gather together once or twice a week with God's people, but you really love the pleasure that comes from being with the buddies as you, you watch a football game and there's no talk of Christ in that midst. That's what really gathers your satisfaction. You, you like being at the water cooler. You like being at, at, at work with with those non-believing buddies, but to be in a Bible study, to to be here is a chore, it's a drain. Worldliness manifests itself in that. Worldliness manifests itself on a fixation of of worldly relationships. Worldly relationships, the kind of relationships that you have here in this world, are are placed at a far higher level in your order of priority than your relationship With Christ himself. You'll invest all kinds of effort and energy. All kinds of money into developing those earthly relationships. But spend little or no time whatsoever walking with Christ. I like what Kevin Young has said as he summarizes all of this. To put it really into a very simple definition. He says this. Worldliness. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal, and righteousness look strange. Jerry Bridges also helps define worldliness. When he writes this in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, he says this, this age, quote, is characterized by the subtle and relentless pressure it brings to bear upon us, to conform to its values and practices. It creeps up on us little by little. What was once unthinkable becomes thinkable, then doable, and finally acceptable to society at large. Sin becomes respectable, and so Christians are no more than five to ten years behind the world in embracing most sinful practices. Again, you need not look far to see this illustrated in real life. What was unanimous among Christians who profess to, to live by the book, what was unanimous 50 years ago is no longer such. You have large portions, even of those who profess Christ, professed to live by the book, now buying into this world's understanding of morality and love, under, buying into this world's understanding of relationships, of worship and so on and so forth. Indeed, sadly, so many professing Christians are no more than five to ten years behind the world. And that speed seems to be decreasing or increasing with time. That that length of time is decreasing as we think, well, maybe that was five to ten years, twenty years ago, but today is it even that? How things are changing. And so many are like that individual in the group who sees the rest of the students answer incorrectly, and even though that individual knows that the group is wrong, will still follow along because of the pressure of conformity. The Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. That is the present danger. Let's look now at the persistent need. The Apostle Paul doesn't just tell us to put this off. He doesn't just tell us to put off conformity, leaving a vacuum in its place. Instead, he gives us the put on as well. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 2. He says this, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's look deeper now at that exhortation, that positive exhortation. And notice he begins with this conjunction, but, which serves as a very strong contrast between what he has just said and what he has said now. And he says, be transformed, do not be conformed to the age, but be transformed. Now, he changes up his verbs here a little bit. This second verb, to be transformed, means to change inwardly in fundamental character or condition. Now, it's possible that the verb to be conformed, that he says do not be conformed in the first half, has more to do with external conformity. Conformity according to what people can see so that you fit in. But this verb emphasizes the internal aspect. To change inwardly. To change in character. And again, it is a present tense, meaning that this is not something that you do just once or occasionally. But in the same way that you are to always be on guard against conformity to this age you are also to be vigilant to be being transformed. It is something that is to happen continually. As we look at it deeper, this word for to be transformed actually is the the Greek verb from which we get the word metamorphosis. And we know what that is. Metamorphosis is that change. You can think of a a butterfly as it moves from a larva to, to a cocoon, and then all of a sudden out comes a... A beautiful butterfly. Now that term to be transformed sometimes does refer to external transformation. For example, it is used in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 to refer to the transfiguration of Jesus. As he was transfigured, his external appearance changed. It was transformed or transfigured. But as Paul uses it here, he uses it to refer to a transformation that takes place from the inside out—a a fundamental transformation that affects the external because of what has happened already internally. Paul uses this word, this verb, in a similar way in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen. This. Very important text on sanctification, on progressive sanctification. And Paul writes this, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 Paul is describing the reality of every true Christian. If you're in Christ, this is happening. If you're in Christ, truly, this is a fact. You are undergoing this process of, of transformation because ultimately, this is something that God accomplishes. This is something that He has put into place and energizes by the counsel of his goodwill, and he will bring it to pass. Nonetheless, it doesn't remove us from our responsibility. In in going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, although in in, in 2 Corinthians Paul uses it simply as as an indicative, as a statement of fact, here in Romans 12, verse 2, he states it as an imperative. This This is something that we are to participate in. And although the, we, we are not ultimately responsible for it, although it is God who does this through the power of His Spirit to conform us to the likeness of His Son, nonetheless, we are responsible to participate in it. One commentator puts it this way, Well, this transformation is not the Christian's own doing, but the work of the Holy Spirit they nevertheless have a real responsibility in the matter to let themselves be transformed, to respond to the leading and the pressure of God's Spirit. Now, in the same way that the world is always pressuring us and, and we are to resist that pressure, we are to be non-conformists in the opposite We are to be conforming to the pressure that comes from the Spirit. The pressure, the influence that comes as a result of the Spirit's ministry in our own lives. And Paul says, he explains how this is done. Notice again the middle of verse 2 where he describes this transformation as taking place according to these means. Notice what he says. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. There is one way in which this process of transformation, one way in which this sanctification is enacted, is accomplished, and it is by the renewing of your mind. Now, what does Paul mean by renewal? You could read Paul elsewhere and you would say, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that, that we are a new creation. We've been made alive. We've been made new. Indeed, that is true. That, is, that has been accomplished through that supernatural, miraculous work called regeneration. You've been given new life. The veil has been lifted. We've studied that back in September. The veil has been lifted and now you have eyes to see. Now your mind can operate and think thoughts after God and and you can please God with your minds. Nonetheless, even though that has already been accomplished at an essential level, there is still the need for ongoing active reconstruction, active rebuilding, active rewiring, Paul says that we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You could look at it this way. The spiritually dead life which we once lived was devoid of the mind. Certainly, we thought thoughts, but those thoughts were all displeasing to God. Those thoughts all in one way or another sought to suppress the truth, In unrighteousness. Then came divine regeneration. That divine regeneration made us alive. For the first time ever, we breathed spiritually. For the first time, our minds understood the truth at a basic level. For the first time, our minds embraced and appropriated that truth. But then as we continue the Christian life, as we keep living now, as we walk by the Spirit, we undergo this spiritually transforming life. And this ongoing spiritually transforming life, we can also call sanctification, is caused by the renewing of the mind. Now the word mind here, what does Paul mean by mind? The word mind here, as we've defined this before, the word mind is that special faculty of of thinking, the faculty of comprehending, the faculty of reasoning, discerning, approving, and, and believing, so we talk about the renewal of the mind we are talking about the the ongoing transformation as that fundamental reality that has come because of regeneration now works itself out from center to the outside tackling all the vestiges of the old life reforming and renewing rejuvenating making all the those thoughts and those Thought structures, those ideas fall into conformity with the truth. That is what is embraced here by the renewing of the mind. And it is through this renewing of the mind that we get sanctification. It's through this renewing of the mind that we get growth in Christ-likeness. John Owen put it this way. The mind, or understanding, is the leading faculty of the soul. And what it fixes on, the will and the affections run after. That's how you need to understand the process of sanctification. It, it, it takes place because of what is going on in the mind. You can try to pursue holiness. You can have a whole list of Things that you're going to to strive after. But if it doesn't begin in the mind, it will not work. God's pattern is that this is accomplished through the renewal of the mind. And as the mind is renewed and it fixes itself more and more on the truth, the affections and the will inevitably follow after. And this is so important men to understand because so often we get it backwards. We, we, we try to force the will, or we fo- for, try to force the, the emotions, the affections, and think that if I can just get the affections to be there, then everything's going to be all right. But the process of this renewal, this, the process of this transformation takes place as the mind, first and foremost, is renewed by the truth. Now let's look at the outcome, the promised outcome. What happens... When the world is resisted, and when the mind is renewed, leading to transformation, what happens? Well, Paul describes that for us at the end of verse 2. Notice what he says. He says this So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those little words right at the beginning there of that clause indicate that Paul is introducing the outcome. The outcome of this renewal of the mind leading to transformation. It leads to something. It leads to something. There is a goal that is envisioned by this renewal of the mind leading to transformation. And and what is it, Paul says? It is to prove. It is to prove. What is What does Paul mean by proving? He means to make a critical examination to determine genuineness. Now that's not to say that Paul is saying that puts us above the word of God to judge it. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying instead is that this renewal of the mind leads to the ability to discern and acknowledge and appreciate the will of God. It leads the mind to be able to discern, acknowledge, and appreciate what God's will is for me. Now, when we talk about the will of God, this is not something that is foreign to us. Undoubtedly, you've asked this question many times. What is God's will for my life? That that is the big question. Probably the number one question that Christians ask. What is God's will for my life? And Paul explains that the answer to this question, Paul explains that the answer to the question of what God's will is for my life is, is not going to come by throwing fleece out to see if there's dew on it the next morning. It's not going to come through looking for signs in the sky, trying to read tea leaves. It's not going to come through visions and dreams in your sleep. Paul says the ability to discern what God's will is for your life is going to come through this renewal of the mind. If you want to discern what God wants you to do, if, God, if, if you want to uh, recognize that and appreciate that, that is going to come through the mind, through what takes place here. Paul's focus is is that your ability to live this life, especially living it to the glory of God as as an acceptable sacrifice to Him, where you can say, I know I'm living within the will of God. I know my life is right in the middle of it. That is going to come through mind renewal. You might ask, well, uh, what, how does that help me choose a job, or where to live, or, or what degree to take in, in, in college? Well, Paul is concerned about a much more fundamental aspect of the will of God. In fact, he's described it just a little bit earlier in the letter to the Romans. And this is an aspect of the will of God that, that we often miss. We miss the forest for the trees. We're, we're so intent on, uh, on discerning some kind of, 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 uh, of will for my next step tomorrow. That we miss the bigger picture. And what is the bigger picture? This is the will that Paul is concerned about. The will of God. It's expressed back in, in, in Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 and verse 29. Paul says this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the will of God that Must occupy our thoughts. That is the will of God that should trouble us. Not in the sense of not knowing what it is. But considering how to get there. How can my life become conformed to Christ's? How can it be conformed to his likeness? That's the big question of God's will. That is what is to consume us. That is... What is to keep us awake at night? That is, what is to be on our thoughts in the morning? That is, what is to, to determine everything that we do throughout the day in one way or another? And Paul says, the answer to that question, of how to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, will be known, will be discerned, appreciated, recognized by the renewal Of the mind. And notice how this renewed mind then looks upon God's will. This renewed mind, this mind that is in the process of of renewal, looks upon God's will as that which is good, that which is free from any hint of malice think the last time a trial came and the temptation was there to think that God's will for you was somehow wrong, wrong wrong-headed, unfair. But by the renewing of the mind, you come to appreciate God's use of trials in your life, and you come to realize that those trials are conforming you to the image of Christ. God is working those trials for your good, and you become convinced that that is good. Free from any hint of evil. You come to realize that it is acceptable. And not in the sense that it's acceptable to you. But that this will of God is acceptable to God. And that it pleases Him. You come to realize that what God is doing in your life. The circumstances that He leads you through. All of that is so important because it brings pleasure to God. And you recognize it and appreciate it as such. And then you recognize it. As perfect, that will of God for your life, to lead you through all these different experiences and circumstances, that it is perfect. It conforms to God's own perfections. In fact, Paul is going to describe more of this will. In the verses that follow, you could begin reading at chapter 12, verse 3, and go all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, where Paul outlines all kinds of aspects of God's will. And by the renewal of your mind, you will come to recognize this truth. You will come to discern it, to appreciate it to see its inherent goodness and how pleasing it is to God and how perfect it is and consistent with God's perfections. Summarizing this, Robert Candlish writes this, The believer's transformation by the renewing of his mind is not the ultimate end which the Holy Spirit seeks in his regenerating and renovating work. It is the immediate and primary design of that work in one sense. We are created anew in Christ Jesus. That new creation is what the Holy Spirit first aims at and effects. But we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. The essence of a good work is the doing of the will of God. Now, how should we respond to this, to this warning, to, to the danger that Paul describes, to the, to the command that he makes, this persistent command, and then to the promised outcome? How should we respond? Let me give you a few implications to think upon this next week. Number one, acknowledge your propensity Acknowledge your propensity. Acknowledge that apart from a deliberate, ongoing process of renewing your mind, you will conform to the world. Apart from the deliberate, vigilant, active participation, working together with God who is at work within you to do and to accomplish his Good pleasure, apart from that, you will conform to the surroundings. The commentator Cranfield puts it this way, the pressures to conformity are always present and always strong and insidious so that the Christian often yields quite unconsciously. The Christian has always to confess that to a painfully large extent, his life is conformed to this age. we got to start here. you got to acknowledge your propensity. And if you don't take heed, take heed, you are in a dangerous, precarious predicament. The, pre- the pressures to conformity are always there. Even just today, I heard several stories of men who once were part of this church and who now have experienced and gone through horrendous sin. And it is not that they just woke up one morning after a life of faithfulness and said, I'm going to walk away from all of this. No, that that outcome was the was the end result of a long process. You talk about men who maybe have left their wives, their families, men who have gotten into all kinds of sin, drunkenness, gambling, pornography. You go down the list and it's never just automatically, one day the person slides head first into that, Kind of enslavement. It comes by little steps of a lack of awareness of how your life is slowly forming to fit the world around you. And acknowledge your propensity begins there in that hymn, Come Now, Fount of Every Blessing, Robert Robinson. Captures it well and stands a three when he says this prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Now, praise be to God that He will hold us fast, those who are His children. But as Paul would say, this involves our participation and it involves. Our awareness of our propensity. Number two, embrace your duty. Embrace your duty. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 is not a mere description of what is happening in you. It's not a passive indicative. Paul chose to express this teaching as an imperative. Yes, a passive imperative but that imperative still underscores the responsibility of our participation what paul is giving us here is not a mere suggestion he's not just offering it up there for you to decide whether you want to do this or not paul is is not giving you the choice if you are in christ this is for you this is your duty this is your obligation as one who is in Christ. Now certainly we recognize that, that the indicatives come first. What God has done for us, that all comes first. But we dare not quickly rush over the imperatives that follow. Again, too often men do that and it explains why they then end up someday in the ditch they end up in the darkness, wondering what happened to me. It's because they didn't embrace their duty. Herman Bavink, the Dutch Reformed theologian, said this scripture always holds on to both facets, God's all encompassing activity and our responsibility. Number three, appreciate the mercy. Appreciate the mercy. The imperative of Romans 12 verse 2 is not based upon your own innate ability. It's not based on just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Not at all. It is, it is empowered and energized by the mercies of God. Go back to chapter 12 verse 1 where Paul says therefore i urge you brethren by the mercies of god what 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 are the mercies of god the mercies of god are chapters 1 through 11 all that god has done all the indicatives all that god has done for his elect everything from his decree before the foundation of the world to his sending of his son as a propitiation for your sins to the pronouncement of justification, to to imputing to you the the righteousness of Christ while taking your sin and and imputing it to Christ on the cross. It is the giving of the Spirit who calls out from within you, Abba, Father, and who intercedes on your behalf. All of those indicatives have been done for you. That is the mercy of God. And rather than seeing this exhortation then and Verse 2, as some kind of onerous obligation. It is a wonderful privilege. Look at what God has done. Be motivated by that. Be motivated to turn away from this world. Be motivated to dedicate yourself to the renewal of your mind. Again, Cranfield writes this, The good news to which the imperative bears witness is that they, these Roman Christians, are no longer helpless victims of tyrannizing forces, but able to resist this pressure which comes both from without and from within because God's merciful action in Christ has provided the basis of resistance. It is the mercy of God that you need not be conformed to this world. It is the mercy of God that you can turn your back on it It is the mercy of God that you are not at the world's mercies. You're not at your lusts' mercies. Don't live like that. Don't live like that. If you're in Christ, these exhortations are now fully yours. Appreciate that mercy. And then number four, recognize the means. Recognize the means. I think everybody, certainly every Christian, would say, my, my goal is to become like Christ. In fact, that's even claimed in the world. They want to be like Jesus. Of course, they have no idea who Jesus is, but it sounds nifty to say that. But we, we want to be like Christ. Well, we have to embrace the means that God has given us to get us there. And what are those means? Those means are the renewal of our minds. That's the means. John Stott said this, One of the most neglected aspects of the quest for holiness is the place of the mind. Again, we, we will equate the quest for holiness, the quest for Christ-likeness with mountaintop feelings, experiences, highs. Or we'll equate it with ritual Or or we'll equate it with this list of do's and don'ts. But the pursuit of holiness takes place in the mind as it is renewed. And as it renews, it leads to this transformation that begins there with the thoughts and beliefs and works its way out into attitudes and words and then into actions and deeds. It'll always take place through the mind. Kent Hughes, as we close, has said this. There is a grave danger in ritual familiarity with holy matters. Even if you are not a professional, it is all too easy to go spiritually brain-dead when the prelude begins, to say prayers rather than to pray them, to use the cadence of a confession as a rhythmic anesthetic, to mindlessly mouth the words of great hymns and gospel songs, to nod off during the sermon, to glibly mouth evangelical creeds, and then imagine that we're really spiritual, end quote. We need to challenge all that. And instead, see every opportunity when we sing a hymn, when another brother prays in our presence, when we hear the Scripture read, when we open the Scripture for ourselves, all of these different things are the opportunities for the renewal of our mind. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at this a lot more specifically as we look at Philippians chapter 4 and the command to think on these things. We will dive deep into what renewal of the mind specifically looks like, the kind of renewal that leads to transformation. Make this your prayer, men. Let's pray. Do that right now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very needed words. These words that cut us to the quick. These words that speak directly to where we're at. Father, we confess along with the hymnist that we are prone to wander prone to leave you, our love. We pray, Father, that your Spirit would be bringing these things to our mind, showing us where there is conformity to this world, showing us where this world has set its roots, and then that your Spirit would work among us Bring us to those moments where the truth confronts our minds. And your spirit would take that truth and press it deeply within us. That he would renew our minds as we sing. He would renew our minds as we pray. He would renew our minds as as we hear sermons. As we evangelize. As we counsel and encourage. As we think on your word, we pray this so that Christ would be formed within us and that indeed that he would be the firstborn among many like brethren. We ask this in his name, amen.